What's up, folks? So normally, uh, when we record, this is the microphone that I use. Now, for whatever reason, the remote software we use to record this podcast said I was using this mic for this episode. I was not. It was using the computer's microphone, so it sounds like I'm talking through a tin can. So unfortunately, the audio on this episode is very, very bad. So be forewarned. Uh, I understand if you don't want to listen to the whole thing, you can try it if you want. You're a really dedicated listener then. Uh, otherwise, uh, I wanted to throw this episode in the trash, but um, decided not to. Uh, we're working on audio issues. I'm working with the company that provides the remote podcasting. Uh, it is a paid service we're paying for. Uh, we do have these very nice mics, uh, and for whatever reason, we're continuing to have audio issues. So thanks for uh, still tuning in, and we're working on it. All right, have a great day. Welcome to episode 176 of Auto Off Topic. What's up, Brad? How are you? I am wonderful, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, I guess the last episode, there's a couple audio issues. So, yeah, it was. Uh, it seemed like it was fast, and our audio layered over itself for some reason. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I had an issue editing it, and it crashed the first time around, and then went back and did it again. And uh, it is what it is. Um, I'm not going to worry about it. Nope, you're on. If you're still listening, we appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it's been Arizona Car Week. It has been, yes. And that's kind of why we skipped a week. I mean, if you're listening to these in order, it doesn't really matter. But uh, your parents came out and visited you, and then you took your dad around to some stuff. And Yeah, yeah, he came out. For, he and my mom came out from Wednesday yeah. to Wednesday just because it was um, – they were able to do the first weekend of Car Week, which is not the, the big weekend, but it is what it is. Next year we'll do you know, maybe the whole week or something. Yeah. We'll see. Right, plan it a little bit better because um, I actually didn't get to any of the auctions. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, my father went to one of the auctions because I, unfortunately I had to work because, you know, I've only been at this job out here for less than three months and I have a three-month probationary period, so you can't take time off. So I couldn't take time off to go to the auctions. And when we planned the trip, I didn't have the job right. yet. So but unfortunately, life is life and you need to work and make money and uh, I had to... Make some make some changes. So my father was able to go to Barrett Jackson while he was here, uh, but I did not. But we did other car stuff though. Yeah, so. what was the other stuff? Did you do the usual? Did you go to like the pavilion? We did. I did a very similar trip. That the stuff that I did with you when you came out yeah. here the first time. It's kind of like one of those uh, first time a car guy comes to Phoenix. This is what yeah. we do. Um. So we did the Penske Museum that you yeah. and I went to, uh, which was very similar, obviously. Um, the big difference was they had Mario Andretti's 1979 Camaro IROC race car. So the IROC car, that is the reason that Chevy made the Camaro, the IROC in the Mm -hmm. eighties. So they had his 1979 bright orange Mario Andretti car. That was really neat. Um, and it cemented a little bit further. My love for second gen Camaros that look like road race cars. Right. So most of the time you see them as race cars, they're either drag cars or they're like dirt track circle cars in New Hampshire. Yeah, exactly. So it was neat to see one that was a proper setup race car. So they're they're really European looking when they're when they're done up that way because they're so low and wide. They kind of uh, have a decent. They don't look like an American car set up that way at all. So that was that was really neat to see. Other than that, it was mostly the same cars that were in there when we were there. Um, the cool thing is that my dad was super excited because they had the 1984 Indy 500 winner car on display. Do you think it was Rick Mears? I'll have to look up to be sure what race car winner it was. No, it was he Rick said Mears. that because I, I talked to him because um, I, I actually I helped you out and I picked them up at the airport parents. So yeah, he yeah. said it was Rick Mears. Yep. Okay. So yeah, so he was actually at the Indy 500 in 1984 and he watched the car win the race. So he, to be able to be like three feet from it now, you know, all these years later after he watched it win the race was pretty exciting for him. So that was pretty neat. So we did that. Um, we also did the same uh, vintage American junkyard that you and I went to, the uh, Desert Valley Auto Parts out in uh, Deer Valley, Arizona. 
Um, that was actually interesting this time because they're actually moving oh, huh. the junkyard. Yeah. So it was pretty active when we were there, even on a Saturday. They're moving stacks of cars. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them are going to get crushed. Oh. Um, but they're only crushing the ones that are pretty far cut up already. Right. Um, so because they're moving, they're taking the opportunity to like dig some stuff out that's been sitting forever that probably won't ever have parts taken off of it. Um, and they're, you know, getting rid of it as scrap metal because at the end of the day, unfortunately, all of the stuff needs to eventually be recycled into something new, right? Right. And if nobody's going to use so it. That's, that's, right. It's been it's been there in the junkyard for 25 exactly. years. Like the, the parts on the car that are left are, you know, either pretty well damaged or it's been so long since anybody's taken anything off of it. It doesn't really matter anymore, which. You know, it hurts a little bit still as a car guy, but, you know, it's unfor- it's an unfortunate reality. It's just you have to do what you have to do. So, but they're, I guess they have three locations and they're moving them to be in two locations. Um, and they're going to wind up expanding to be two bigger locations. But in the meantime, they're shutting down that location. So the area where it's at is growing a bit. There's a bunch of new construction, like warehouses and stuff out there. So I'm sure somebody made them an offer they couldn't refuse for that land. Exactly. So they want, they're moving to a slightly more desolate area. Where are the other two places? Um, they're in the area out here. Uh, one's in Mesa and one is, I forget what city exactly it's in, but they're not far from here. They're within, you know, an hour's drive. So there's okay. definitely more places, more places to go exploring. That's for sure. Oh, cool. All right. Yep. And, and that's only one of the many companies here in town too. It's not like there's only that one company that has, you know, a vintage tin scrapyard here. So there's definitely, there's lots around, you know, at the moment. So no complaints there. Just it was neat to see them moving stuff around and digging out stuff that probably hadn't been seen in 20 years that was buried under three Dodge darts, you know? Right. So that was kind of neat. Um, and then in the Phoenix tour of automotive things, uh, I took them to the all exclusively Hot Wheels, Hot Wheels store. Yep. Is that something that every gearhead who's into Hot Wheels has to go to? Um, I realized I crossed a a a marker now when I went in oh, there. They knew you because I've been there enough that they know <laughs> me now. Yes. <laughs> so there's that. Um, and then we went to the Pavilion's Car Show that I took you to that Saturday yeah. night. So, you know, it's just a a traditional cruise in style car show out here and. It goes all day. We talked about it before. That stuff rotates in and out during the day, and it goes from like noon to nine o'clock at night. So, uh, I mistakenly thought that the week, bef- the weekend before official car week start was the big um, pavilions car show, but apparently it was the Saturday after car week. So yesterday was the huge pavilions show. It was still probably pretty big. It was still yeah. very big. Yeah, no question. I mean, it's big every week, um, but. The one that happens at the end of car week, people will bring their car there on Friday night and leave it for the night <laughs> to, to, to get a parking spot. So that's how that's how big it gets that week. But unfortunately, we did not go to that one because they had to fly out on Wednesday. So uh, while he was here, he also got to check out the Phoenix Art Museum has the Legends of Speed event right now, oh. um, which is all historic race cars from the 20s until the 50s, pretty much uh, into the 60s, actually, because it has a GT40 in there. Um, like the true, the, the Lamar winning 67 GT40 is in there. Um, as well as the class winner Lamar Corbett Daytona Coupe, uh, Tazio Nuvolari race cars. And I will talk about this more next time when I get to go All see right. it. Um, we're planning on going to go see that either tonight or later this week. So. And uh, speaking of that GT40, so Ford versus Ferrari is up for an Oscar, which is interesting. That's good for best picture. Really for film. Oh, I don't think. I don't think it does either. Right. But that's interesting that they nominated it. I, just, I was surprised. Yeah, it's probably the first car movie to be nominated ever. Yeah. Um, and then you had a live video the other day. Where did you go to the zip tie drags for? Um, was it Roadkill? Yeah. Do you want to skip right to that? Um, yeah. Sure yeah so that was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday was the zip tie drags, um, which is the your least favorite YouTube channel, Roadkill. Um, they do basically it's a run what you're wrong drag strip well, event. See, this sounds fun. The watching the show sounds 
is is boring to me. But if you were going to do stuff, well, I enjoy the show. We already know I enjoy the show, yeah. so that's not yeah, not, yeah. not important. But uh, yeah, no, it was a good time. They have it is a car show, the drag race, and they have a uh, burnout box, which is more of a like Australian style like um, donut box, I guess. <laughs> so people just went in there and did drifting and donuts and. Uh, it was a lot of fun to watch because you'd see people go out there and beaters they don't care about at all and just drive them till they can't drive them anymore, whether it be mechanically failed or, you know, exploding tires off of wheels. Um, but yeah, I took that live video of it. I think it was the Dodge Ram that was in there just doing tons and tons of donuts. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually pretty impressive to watch a guy take a 2500 4x4 Ram, um, like a probably like a 98 and he had it looked like he was driving like a you know Nissan 240 drift car out there, so it was pretty neat watching him just you know drift the entire thing around in circles and circles. But um, that's not the main highlight there. The main highlight is obviously the drag racing. Uh, they use this drag strip in Tucson. It's called uh, actually I think it's just called Tucson Dragway. Okay. Um, and they have basically it's it's just like a Wednesday night grudge night at New England Dragway. It's just run what you rung. There's no real classing or rules running for most of the day. Um, so you saw everything from a 23-second quarter-mile Baja Volkswagen right. <laughs> to a uh, professional wheel stander um, to a 8-second Ford Granada that looked like a grandma car. Huh. Uh, for our Volvo listening fans, there was an 11-second quarter-mile Volvo 240 with a full interior. Oh. That was pretty neat. Um, some of our Volvo listening fans won't like the fact that it was Chevy powered with a big turbo, but you know, it's not going to go 11s on a four cylinder red block. So, <laughs> um, it was a neat day, uh, different from our norm. We don't normally do drag racing stuff. Yeah. But I like the idea of it because it's just people having fun with random cars. It's, pe- it's people enjoying cars. Exactly. That's what it was. Um, I think one of the cool stories of the day was this guy had this uh, Chevy Suburban, like an 85, like a square body style. Um, and it's an odd choice for a drag vehicle, you know, being a giant bus sized vehicle. Um, but we watched it line up at the line and we heard him do his burnout and we're like, uh, I think we'll watch this guy because it sounded you know, like a serious race vehicle. It didn't sound like a Chevy Suburban that somebody just brought to the racetrack. Um and he lined up, staged, lights went yellow, 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 green, launched it, and he did rev limiter immediately. That's all it was. So I was like, that's not good. Um, and the rear diff just exploded in like a million pieces. All over the track, just exploded in a million pieces. Um, got the track truck off the track. A little cleanup time. It wasn't too bad because he broke at the line, so it didn't like oil down the whole entire track. Um and he managed to swap out the diff center section in the parking lot in like, I don't know, a couple hours. He was all done. And then they had to put a call out to find somebody who had a whatever part number U joint to fix the thing. <laughs> so it was neat to see like these people working together, like putting these things back together. So we're watching him put this Suburban back together. Um, and it turns out that it's not really a Suburban anymore. You can't tell from the side of the drag strip when you walk up to it, the entire thing is just... Like he's fixing the rear diff by standing in the back of the Suburban oh. with his feet on the ground. <laughs> so it's a Suburban shell welded to like, you know, all this. I think the stock frame is mostly still there, but there's no floors, no seats. And it almost looks like a top fuel, like, or yeah, like a flip top funny car inside with like the roll hoop over the driver and, you know, the engine, you go under the hood and the engine, the only you can see is the front two cylinders because it's all set way back under what used to be the firewall. So it was definitely not a Suburban anymore. So that was kind of cool to see. Huh. Yeah, it was, neat. it was a neat time. I mean, honestly, um, I think the weirdest things that were there, which didn't really fit the theme of the event, but they were cool because they were there, was a mid-60s Austin Healey 3000 with a fastback coupe body on it, which I don't know that I've ever seen. It kind of looked like a Triumph Spitfire GT6 which I know somebody will yell at me because they're not a Spitfire GT6. They're a GT6, but whatever. Um, and that was powered by a early 90s Toyota Supra turbo engine, which is just something you wouldn't normally see in an old Austin Healey. 
No. Um, and there was a guy with a bug-eyed Sprite who was there, which was still four-cylinder British car-powered, um, that participated in the burnout competition and donuts in the donut box. Huh. Which is something you would never see anywhere. No. <laughs> so he drag-raced it, too. So it wasn't fast, but it was there, and it was... He was just enjoying it as a car. I mean, he trailed it in, so I guess he didn't, you know, worry about breaking it too much, but... It was definitely an interesting vehicle to see doing donuts and drifting and burnouts and drag racing in a little bug-eyed sprite. So it was a good day. Um, if you're a fan of Roadkill, they had their road. A bunch of the Roadkill cars were there, and um, obviously Freiberger was there, and uh, Steve Dolchich. If you watch the show, you know who he is. He was there. And they were doing like autograph sessions and stuff during the day. And they had the big main event at the um, whole day is you enter to win, race your car against Freiburger. Mm-hmm. So you race your car against the guy who is from the, the show. So we, unfortunately, we actually left before that part happened. But um, they had a bunch of the roadkill cars there. Um, if you're familiar with the show, they have a car they call the Disgusting, which is a Junkyard Rescue 69 Mach 1 was there. The NASCARLO, which is a used to be a like dirt track circle track car that they turned yep. into a street car. Um, they had the they call it the Vanishing Paint instead of Vanishing Point Challenger, which they did uh, one lap of America in, I think, and a couple other road racing style events. So that car was there. Um, the Draguar, which is the Jaguar with a blown big block Chevy, and it was there. Um, and I forget the name of it, unfortunately, but the the junkyard rescue Suzuki Samurai with a big block Chrysler and it was there. So that was kind of cool to see those guys up close and personal and see exactly how big of a crap can they are in real life. But they're actually not. They're pretty, they're pretty neat. The vanishing paint challenger and the disgusting in particular are very well put together cars. They just, they don't have paint on them because they're Mm -hmm. junkyard rescues pretty much. They're both very neat cars, and they're both very much in the aesthetic of something that you or I would enjoy very much. Just a good running car that you can just do anything with, and you don't worry too much about the paint. So, very very neat show. I would, I'm definitely looking forward to it next year. Um, I'll probably participate in at least the car show portion of it next year. Right. We just went down in a modern vehicle this time, which actually is a story in itself. Okay. Because we have talked on the show before about Teslas and Tesla charging. Yep. I have never ridden in a Tesla before. Okay. I mean, I've been in, I've been in them in parking lots and driven around to like the parking lot of a body shop with them. Um, but this is the first time being in one for any length of time. Um, former guest of the show and friend of the show, Ron and I went together, and uh, his wife daily drives a Tesla, pretty much for, um, yeah, HOV lane purposes. So. <laughs> We took that. Um, not that we needed it for the HOV lane, but because it wasn't going to cost us any gas money. Yeah. <laughs> so we might as well take it. Um, it was interesting. They're not the most comfortable cars for the long haul. It, it surprised me how uncomfortable the seats were after being in them for the day. Um, very rough on your like lumbar area. Um, there's not a lot of padding, a lot of foam. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, for a car that was a six-figure car new, and we talked about this on the way down there. I don't understand why they didn't outsource the seats to somebody who knew what they were doing. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't use like a, a parts bin seat either. Yeah, or like, or even like call Recaro and be like, hey, we need something that is worthwhile of the six-figure price tag. Um, because I, I'm not one to normally complain about seats. I mean, I drove across the country in an 83 Sapporo. Um, and these seats were just, they weren't comfortable. You know, and we're talking about the fact that maybe they didn't want to because of, you know, pride reasons. They didn't want to outsource parts, but there's a lot of outsourced parts on the car. There's a lot of Mercedes. Yeah, isn't the steering wheel on Mercedes? The the whole steering column, all the buttons and the switch gear and all of that is all Mercedes. Right. Um, The suspension is all Mercedes as well, I guess. Um, And there's a lot of other, you know, small outsourced things on the car. So I don't see why they didn't just 
also outsourced seats. Maybe not from Mercedes because they would be too fam- familiar to people who had a Mercedes and they didn't want them to be the same. But again, there's there's so many aftermarket companies out there that do make seats for other car companies, like you know, Recaro for one. You know, and, and a car that you're making a six figure car, I don't see why it wouldn't have cost. It wouldn't have been cost effective to outsource that versus developing your own seat. And right. if I have any complaint about the car, that was it. It was it was it was the seats. Um, a couple of little tiny little problems here and there that are just you know it's a brand new car company, so that makes sense. I mean, their car is at two thousand and I think it's a fourteen or a sixteen, so it's one of the earlier cars. So it's not as polished probably as the brand new ones are, um, but it's it's still. Interesting tech. You don't notice that it's electric most of the day driving the car. Um, the one time you do notice it is when you come off the throttle. Um, because it breaks so aggressively, the taillights come on huh. to do regen. You basically don't need to touch the brake pedal unless you're planning on coming to a stop or an emergency situation only. Huh. So it's that was odd because as a passenger, you feel yourself every time the driver comes off the throttle the car applies the brakes. So it's almost like you're, you feel like you're riding in a car with a timid driver, the kind of person that's like gas brake, gas brake, gas brake, because the car is actually doing that, not the driver. So, I mean, if the driver pays extra attention, they can maybe keep a little bit of pedal pressure and stop it from doing it. But it's definitely not something that somebody who drives a regular gas car every day is going to be like ingrained in their brain to do that. Does it feel like, if you rev out a car in first gear and then let off the gas, like that's exactly how Ron described it on the way back. He's like, it's like we're driving in second gear or third gear all the time. Yeah. So it's, it's, it aggressively slows the car down. So that was interesting and something that you obviously you'd have to get used to if you drove the car every day. Um, so we left the racetrack just to fast forward a little bit. And there was a Tesla supercharger station, not too far from the racetrack. So the plan was to hit that, on the way out for the drive home. And we had another stop. We were stopping at another friend's house to pick up actually uh, center caps for my Eclipse. Um, big shout out to our friend, uh, Mr. Castro down here in Arizona. Um, I think you'd find him at, at Sigma Gallant. At Sigma Gallant is his Instagram name, I think. I think that sounds right. Anyway, we stopped by his place to grab the center caps. So we, we stopped at the Tesla supercharger station. Um, and it's at a big, you know, I don't know if it was a Valero or a circle K or whatever. Um, and said, all right, we'll plug the car in. We'll go inside, grab some refreshments, maybe grab a sandwich cause it's after lunchtime now, um, and figure out, you know, how long it takes to charge. So we went in, it was like a subway sandwich shop. Nothing, nothing spectacular. We grabbed our crappy subway subs um, ate them, went outside, and it was only at like 35%. So we're not quite sure what's going on with these Tesla superchargers at this station <laughs> because it probably sat there for 35, 40 minutes and didn't charge very far. Oh, that's not good. Right. So the range was, I think, 140 miles. And we're looking at all the things and we were about a hundred miles from home with that second destination as well. So we're like, all right, well, there are 140 miles of range. We have to go a hundred miles. Shouldn't be a problem. Everything seems all fine. We go get the hubcaps, um, move on driving home. The highway gets shut down. Oh, it's a massive, unfortunately deadly car accident. Like, 10 miles up from where we are and the highway is legitimately shut down like closed for you know investigational purposes i don't know how familiar most people are with arizona but the road between tucson and phoenix is pretty sparse there's nothing there um i-10 is the road that you take and that is the one that got shut down and there are a couple of charging stations along the way there um so we wound up sitting in traffic forever and going about 30 miles out of our way to get back to a road that was moving. So now we had 140 miles of range to go 100 miles, and we've gone 30 miles out of the way, plus sitting in traffic for an hour and a half. 
So now I'm looking at the screens and it's like distance to home, 90 miles, charge left, 100 miles. I'm like, oh boy. (laughs) And the screen, the map screen pops up. Please drive under 50 miles an hour to make it to your destination. And I'm like, oh boy. And now because we're not on the main I-10 drag, we're on originally a access road and then some city streets and then Route 79 the rest of the way, there are no charging stations. <laughs> so in my brain, I'm completely panicked because we're going to be stuck out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night in this car with no juice. Um, Ron is continuously telling me that it's going to be okay and everything's going to be fine, <laughs> that the car is conservative and there's not an issue. Kind of like when your light comes on, you still got another 30 or 40 miles in a gas car. So... Um, it didn't help me at all. I mean, I know he knows the car, but I don't know the car. So I experienced range anxiety in my first ride in a Tesla with some pretty serious, uh, some pretty serious results here. Um, short version of the long story. We made it back. I think we had about 12% juice left when we got back to the house. Weird. Or not 12%, 12 miles, excuse me. So we're pulling down his street. He's like, oh, look, 12 miles. Let's go for a drive. (laughs) (laughs) So we did, we did make it home. Um, but unfortunately the whole plan was to go to zip tie drags for the day and then leave there, leave that area around five and be back up here around seven to go to the pavilions car show, which is the biggest one of the year. But with this accident, we wound up not getting back here until nine. And then, you know, we're a good 30 minutes away from where the show is and the show ends at nine. So we just, we missed out on the biggest pavilion show of the year because, Unfortunately, somebody had a bad accident where they passed away on the highway yesterday in the middle of the day on a straight road, which is per the norm out here. Mm-hmm. So that, unfortunately, is the end of Arizona Car Week for me with a crushing disappointment not getting to the last show. But we got we had a lot of car stuff this week, and there's been a bunch of cars driving around town that you wouldn't normally see. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this beautiful 37 Buick driving around town towing a 15-foot Airstream behind it. That's cool. It's just, it's just like, what a combination. Mm-hmm. Um, bunches of, you know, 60s pickup trucks, 70s pickup trucks. Just lots of cool stuff, just cruising around town. Sweet. So, it's been a good week. Yeah, it's been a good week. I feel like I'm forgetting something else I went to. Mm, I don't know. I don't know either. So, some news uh, stories we missed while we were gone. Uh, Carlos Gozen. Crazy story. Uh, so, yep, completely crazy. We kind of covered it a little bit before. I think it's been almost a year ongoing. He's in, like accused of like embezzling money, funneling into his own dealership group. Uh, he claims it was because people in management in Nissan Renault Mitsubishi didn't want him, so they're coming up with these charges to get rid of him. And he thinks right, he, but the money trail doesn't he lie. He thinks he's being railroaded <laughs> by the Japanese government. Uh, so he escaped to his home country, uh, and this is where it gets really crazy because he was on home arrest because he's a rich person. So you put them on home arrest. Uh, I mean, this of is course. also like the part where he was like at his um, lawyer's office and then like disguised himself as like a subway worker. To like try to avoid the press. Oh, I, for, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was when the yeah. whole thing first started yeah. going down, and it was it was hysterical. It was almost like I don't even know how to describe it. It was he like, he like was, Mario uh, from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's too tall though, more like Luigi. No, he's kind of short and chubby. I think Mario. Oh, is he? I don't remember. I remember it looked ridiculous. Yeah. Like I, it reminded me of the episode of The Office where they try to be maintenance workers and they put the fake yeah, mustaches. It's like on. undercover boss. Like you're, yeah. <laughs> or like you know, like the like somehow Superman is disguised by simply putting glasses on. <laughs> right. Um. So then he's at his house on home arrest. Uh, they hired some sort of band to play this event at his house. It was clearly like a cover. Uh, and then they had a team of security contractors that they hired and they used a modified instrument case, which currently now Yamaha is like, please don't get in our music cases. Yeah. <laughs> they are airtight yeah. people. So they like modified it to, he could, you know, sit in it probably had like auction or holes or something 
I smuggle him out of the house, get on a waiting private aircraft, and then eventually they flew him back to Lebanon, his home country. Um, He's probably the first person in history to ever sneak into a Eastern European country. Um, yeah. Like you hear about all refugees and stuff leaving those areas yeah. now. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to go to Lebanon. No big deal. He has like a passport in Lebanon, Brazil, and like somewhere else. He has like a couple dual citizenships. It's really crazy. Um, but they don't have an extradition policy with Japan, so that's why he went there. Yep, plus he's and- a citizen there. Yeah, he's a citizen, and I guess he's a pretty big deal there because he's one of the most successful Lebanese people. So, right, um, you know, Interpol says he's a fugitive. He claims he was framed. Uh, Japan apparently has a ninety-nine percent conviction rate, so that's why he felt he couldn't get a fair trial. Right. Um, but it's mostly like the. It seems like the plot of a movie, and that's why it's so weird and crazy, and worth mentioning. It's completely insane. Yeah. I, and the story is still ongoing at this point because there's no. He, he keeps saying he's going to release a statement to explaining everything that's going on, but he hasn't done it yet, I don't think. I think he did, and it was kind of wild, and I didn't watch it, but I heard it was like kind of raving. But I love the jokes that, you know, his only crime is the cross cab and the <laughs> letting, letting the 370Z go for so long <laughs> and Nissan's yeah. CBTs. Oh, whatever. Just good he's not in charge of Mitsubishi anymore, so yeah. We'll yeah. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> it was just—it's like a really, really bizarre thing. But yeah, for sure. Some other crazy stuff. Um, so there was—it's a big auction week. So not only in Arizona, but yeah. also in Florida. Yeah, Florida too. Um, big news that the bullet car was going to go up for auction. Like, yep. Everybody was reporting on it. It had like some ridiculous number. I think estimates were four million or something. Yeah, three three to four million was the auction estimate. Yeah. Which is it sounds funny when you say three to four. Like that's not a big range, but then you think that's three to four million is a big range. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It ended up zero, selling- zero, zero to one million is what we're familiar with. Yeah. And way closer to zero. Yeah. <laughs> so it ended up selling for three point four million dollars. Yeah, right. For a ratty old Mustang. Yeah. Although I mean, it's, it's a significant car, there's no question. It is, uh, and it, it is a drivable car. Like it has, like you know, some patina to it. It would be like a car that they would mistakenly grab on roadkill because it was in somebody's garage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A, and throw an LS in it or something. Um. But this was purely for eyeballs because, you know, this is the highest price anyone has ever paid for a Mustang, but it's a very specific Mustang. Like, it will not dictate the Mustang market. Like, it's not just because this one sixty-eight Mustang sold for $3.4 million doesn't make all other Mustangs worth more money. No, not at all. Mustangs are already worth more than they should be anyway, based on how many there are um, compared to other muscle car era cars that are out there. Yeah, well, they're popular, so... They're very popular, which is why they're worth their worth. But yeah. yeah, this doesn't do any. This doesn't change anything. It's kind of a ho hum model too. It wasn't anything particularly special. It's not like a Shelby or something. Well, I mean, it's a it's a factory V eight stick fastback, so it's definitely worth more than a, a notchback car or a six cylinder yeah. or an automatic car. Like it's definitely it's definitely a desirable. It's a desirable Mustang. Yeah, it's not a Shelby. It's not a but you know, race car, but it's definitely the most desirable of the standard. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying though. If you took it, if it was separate from the movie, it was never in the movie. It would not be worth nearly as much as like a GT 350 or something. No, it'd be a $30,000 car. Um, But that's what I mean. A a car in that condition as a Mustang, as a fastback, as a V8, as a stick is a $30,000. Really? Even with that much? Whereas I would say so maybe 25 to 30. I guess that makes sense. Um, where the notchback version of the same car is running driving car is an eight to twelve thousand dollar car. Wow, interesting. So, yeah, maybe maybe I'm off a little bit price wise, but there is a big disparity from the notchback to the fastback, which is why you'll see a lot of people take notchback cars and turn them into fastback cars. Uh-huh. 
because you can find a junk, rotted floor, terrible, awful fastback car, and the roof is usually in good shape, and they'll graft it onto the notchback. Right. I know of a couple, actually. The one that's in your area that has, um, it's it's the same color as the bullet car, goes to all the cruisers mm-hmm. and stuff. It's got like a modern five liter mm-hmm. in it. That car started life as a notchback. Yep. And he did that whole swap in his garage. Yeah, it's a really nice as his first as his first restoration project ever. <laughs> but it can be done. Now it's interesting, but they, they definitely work more. That movie was the fifth highest grossing movie in 1968. I'll have okay. to watch it again because I don't remember it being very good. But apparently, it was it was critically acclaimed. Um, it's not a bad movie. You have to watch it with the eyes of somebody in that year, though. And what, what year did we come out? 68. Yeah. So you'd have to watch it with the eyes of a moviegoer in 68. Movies were just different then. Well, the pacing's all different. Um, I like The pacing is much slower. The filming is much different. And one of the things that that movie did for car movies is it cemented the car-to-car um, shot for the car chase. Like, that's where that, that came from. The car-to-car Well, video. yeah, it won an Academy Award for editing, basically, for that scene. Right. Um, yep. I mean, I think the Seven Ups is a better movie in general and a better car chase. It came out like seventy or seventy-one. Same producers. The problem with the Seven Ups car chase is it isn't a sixty-eight Charger and a sixty-eight exactly. Mustang. It's more boring, you know, early seventies Pontiac sedans, yeah. late sixties Pontiac sedans. It's not. It doesn't have the 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 panache that a Mustang chasing a Charger or a Charger chasing a Mustang has. So that's that's why you don't hear about that one as much. Now, interestingly, the Love Bug came out the same year and grossed more money. Not the original yes, Love Bug. The original Love Bug did. No, the original Love Bug was a black and white nope. movie. Love Bug came out in nineteen sixty eight. Really? Yep. It's not a black and white movie. Okay. <laughs> um it, and then so like that was just an interesting aside because I don't think if the love bug went up for auction, it would get nearly that much money, even though culturally it's probably more in the pop culture, right? Yeah, we come on 68. Yeah. Why do I, why do I think it was a black and white no, movie? Definitely not. I haven't seen it since I was probably eight. So that's probably yeah. why, but those actually, I want to watch all those movies again. The original, the original four of those. Yeah. There's Herbie, there's a love bug. Then Herbie rides again. And uh, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo and Herbie Goes Bananas. So the funny thing about those movies is I wasn't that interested in uh, The Beetle. Like, like okay. the bad guys' Ferraris were way cooler. <laughs> like, way cooler. Uh, No, the main, the, the, main, the main car in the first movie wasn't a Ferrari. It was a uh, Apollo GT. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. I thought it was a Ferrari when I was yeah. a kid. It was yellow, no, right? The yellow yeah. one? Yeah. I thought it was yellow. Yeah. I, you know, what? Wait, why did I think the movie was black and white yet I knew the Apollo GT was yellow? Yeah. Huh. Oh, I thought it was a GTO. That's a that's a weird uh that's a weird movie. No, it was the um the Thorndike special, I think was the name of it. And it was uh a, a nineteen sixty five or six Apollo GT. Hmm. Which is a weird little British, you know, small maker, race car hmm. maker. So because back then in Great Britain there were tons of sports car makers that would right. make, you know, five or six cars and go racing with them. And that's what one of those was. That car still exists actually. Yeah. So, yeah, the Apollo GT, not a Ferrari. Anyway, yes, I think there might have been a Ferrari in one of the later movies, but in the original movie, and, and there are definitely Ferraris in the racing yeah. scenes, but the, uh, the main character, you know, uh, Mr. Thorndike, the Thorndike special was an Apollo GT. Yeah. So, anyway, but yeah, I, I think you're correct. I don't think that car would be 3.4 million. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the culture surrounding special Mustangs and special muscle cars in general. Um you know, a, a Hemi Cuda convertible is what eleven million dollar car yeah. now, ten million dollar yeah. car now. But nineteen fifty six Volkswagen Hebenmuller convertible, which they made less of, and Beetles are also as iconic, wouldn't sell for anywhere near that because it doesn't have the same. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's a, a macho thing with the muscle car or what, but I'm not sure why some muscle cars are worth what they're worth because they shouldn't be. <laughs> So the price is coming from a the muscle car market and the appeal of the Mustang to yep. the cultural significance of it being in this movie, and then mm-hmm. I feel like something happened 
in the last 20 years where McQueen's legend kind of seemed to grow more. And, it definitely and then did. Ford capitalized it with the bullet car. I think the first one was like an S it was a new edge Mustang in like Oh seven. No, uh, no, they, they made, they made like a 99. Yeah, or 2000, yeah, that's what that, that right. The new edge. And, yeah. Before the retro car. Yeah. And then it looked really cool in the first retro restyle of the car. Um, yep. And then they just keep doing it because it makes money. So, uh, yep. but as far as movie tie-ins, that's really the only one that makes sense. Cause we talked about that before. Like, you know, that makes a lot more sense than like a star Wars car or the stupid, um, uh, Iron Man car. Like, yeah. Well, we talked about movie tie-in cars before too. Like the Bumblebee Camaro makes a little bit of sense. Like, I personally hate it with a passion, but that doesn't mean it doesn't make sense because yeah. the car was a Camaro in the movie. So it made sense that the, the whole purpose of the Bumblebee being a Camaro in the Transformers movie was for marketing because traditionally Bumblebee was a Volkswagen Beetle. Now, I do think that this is the most the bullet car will ever be worth. I don't think that if it goes up for auction in 10 yeah. or 15 years would ever reach this amount. I, I just think the demand just won't be there anymore. Like it'll just fall off for sure. The only, the only way I think it'll be worth as much is if inflation goes up with it, because I don't see the generation of people that would pay this much money for this car is eventually going to, you know, just like every generation is going to dwindle, um, and they're going to have less people that are interested. That's just the only way about it. I don't see it going anywhere near this ever again. Uh, muscle cars in general are the next cars to take the dive. You know, fifties cars and early sixties cars have already. Because the people who are buying them are passing away. Yeah. You know, not to be morbid, but that's how life works. So that's, I, I think that you're 100% right. I don't think it's ever going to sell for $3.4 million again. I think that there's a lot of fanfare surrounding this because it's the first time it's ever gone for sale. There's the kill, it's a great story about how the car was hidden by the same family for years and, you know, they kept it and didn't really think much of it. And then now all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, we found it. What are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to make this whole think about it and I, I don't think that you'll ever see as in a purely a value investment I don't think it was a wise move no unless there's some, some tax laws or if they can put it on display and make money that way somehow with tax laws that I just am not in the right tax bracket to understand how those tax laws work yeah. maybe that's, maybe that will work for the owner of the car but I just I'd rather have a clone at that point exactly uh, because like, do you think the back to the future, the a car, which is in the Peterson, if it went up for auction, would it even sell for a million dollars? I bet it'd be, I bet it'd be in the multiple hundreds of thousands, but I don't think it would go in the millions yeah. and that was high, because at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's a DeLorean. Yeah. And that was the highest grossing movie of 1985. Yeah. And I think that movie is way more culturally significant. Like way more people know that movie than both. Mm hmm. So, yeah, no, no question. Just kind of interesting stuff. Um, it's interesting, and like, like we've said it a thousand times in in personal conversation and and when whatever, it's it doesn't mean anything to the market for anything else. No, like not, not there's no other reason for this. It's just advertising for them. Yeah, there's, there's no reason to talk about it other than it happened. Yeah, like it doesn't mean anything moving forward. Uh, so other interesting auction stuff in Japan, a Datsun. Z car, but it was a 432R, which is super yep. rare, like a special, they had the twin cam head, like super rare. Uh, it was the same motor that was in the Skyline GTR, right. the K KPG CT10 or whatever, yeah. KPG CT10. And they estimate there's only 30 or 50 of these cars built. Uh, Correct. It sold for $800,000, which that's a lot of money for a Z car. Oh, yeah, for sure. Granted, it's the rarest of the rare, but, like, what does that make a regular 240Z that's super clean worth? I don't think it touches the value of that car either. I think it's the same kind of thing where it doesn't affect the bottom end of the market. You know, they, they say a rising tide, you know, raises all ships or whatever, um, but you can't compare a car they made 150000 of to a car they made forty of. It just doesn't. It's the same reason that a, um, a Hakasuka Skyline GT is a $70,000 car and a Hakasuka Skyline GTR is a million-dollar car. It's not, hmm. you know, the, the, the Z car is way more common 
than the Hakusuka. Right. Uh, it might not have been in period. They made probably made more Skyline sedans and, and coupes, but they were only sold, you know, they weren't sold in this country. Um, and they weren't preserved because they were just daily driven sedans. Whereas early Z cars are pretty well preserved as a lot of them left because people bought them as second cars. They bought them to use them on nice days or weekends or um, sports car racing stuff. Right. Or they're just they're more preserved. And I think there's too many of them for this to affect that market either. I mean, that market's already gone way up. You know, a clean 240, like early 240, you know, you're already spending over $20,000 now. Hmm. So it's, I mean, you, you can buy running, driving cars for less than 10, but for a nice, really nice restored, you know, they're, they're 20 grand plus. And some of the, some of them are 50 grand plus, depending on how well they're restored. But I don't think it's going to do much to it. Okay. Uh, Personally, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I'm not the expert by any means, but. Well, yeah, then that comes the, if it's just a, I bet that Datsun, you know, does it give an $800,000 driving experience? Probably not. Uh, no, I remember no, when no. Those, but it's got to be driven. Yeah. I remember when those were selling for 80K and mm-hmm. um, it was probably worth it for you um, to have a, that rare car if that's what you want. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, This might be the car we saw in person. No, no, no. Because this, this one was sold in Japan. Yeah, I'm reading an article about it right now. This car sold at Amelia Island in here first and spent some time on the East Coast in the U.S. before being shipped back to Japan. That'd be interesting because that car was super clean. Yeah, I'm wondering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've, it, was, it, was, it was definitely the same color. I think they only came in that color. Uh, that, that model. I've never seen one not in that color. So, But uh, out in Arizona... The Dodge Viper serial number 001 that was owned by Lee Iacocca. Mm-hmm. They took, he took right off the assembly line. So I had like 6,500 miles on it. Um, that sold for $285,000. Yeah, that's, that seems about right. Yeah, well, especially because it's the first one. Yep. Owned by a and, significant car person. And the, there's a Shelby connection there. And the Shelby connection is high right now. This is Shelby name is high right now. Yeah, so um, I think that yeah, I think that's yeah. That, like that doesn't seem like that crazy of a price for it. It did exceed estimates, but like if you want serial number one Dodge Viper, also mm-hmm. with the provenance of being owned by Lee Iacocca, and you're collecting yep. stuff, I guess that makes sense for sure. you. Yeah, I, I think that's a good buy because I think that the regular Vipers right now are at the bottom of the depreciation curve still. Yeah. Because they're un, they're, they're they're like a '66 Cobra in 1981 right now. Yeah, you know what I mean. They're they're kind of they're sitting down there. They were 70 grand ish brand new. Mm-hmm. You know you can buy you can buy one now for less than 40. Um, I think that they're not going to get any cheaper than that, and they're going to start going back up. And I think before we know it, they're going to be 150 grand for one of those. It'd be a pretty cool car to have in the collection. I- Yep, because it's, it's yeah, like, and, that's, and that's something you can get in and drive because it's all parts man Dodge stuff. Yeah, and it's just kind of like a weird car. Um, it's cool enough that you can drive it to people are okay with it going to a cruise night. You can also you can just drive it anywhere. Like it's, it's totally yep. acceptable everywhere. Like yep, and like uh, yeah, no, it's always it's got it's got a lot of presence. Yeah, the car really shows itself as something that's very. Uh, it's not something that just slips past. Like you, you notice a Viper, whether you're a car person or not. So yeah, I, I think that a, a mid nineties Viper in 2019 is probably a good buy um, to use, enjoy, and still be an investment. Now they're not as, or as, as the phrase is park your money. Yeah. They're not <laughs> as cheap as a C4, but they are way less common. And that's why they're going to go up yeah. in value. I mean, look, look at the C3 Corvette compared to the C4. They made just as many of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a mid-year C3 Corvette is still, you know, worthless, <laughs> essentially, mm-hmm. compared to other cars of, of the same time period. So um, another vehicle that sold here at auction um, this week, there were two of them. Yeah. Um, very low mile third gen Supras. Really? Now, I'm not sure third if gen. this okay. is a case... I'm not sure if this is a case of people who are just involved in the auction world hearing the name Supra and seeing the low miles and and pushing the number up. Um, I should have pulled the auction results um, 
up already on them here, unfortunately, but they were both in a stupid number. <laughs> um, I'll pull it up real quick here. They were both like, you know, one was like a 190 mile car and one was like a couple hundred mile car. Oh, museum. Uh, but yeah, but the third gen Supras, which historically are worth nothing. Yeah, but why did someone save one? I mean, they had some idea that uh, someday, and they waited 40 years to uh, put it up for auction. Yeah, I, I just, I don't, I apologize. I'm trying to pull it up right now, which is obviously not good uh, on air talk. I should have pulled it up ahead of time. There was a big article about it already. Oh, we can move on and I'll find the price here eventually. Well, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum for these vehicles, uh, yep. it was a Dodge Colt that was on Bring a Trailer. Mm-hmm. What year was that Colt? Was it 71? 71. So early? Technically first year. First year. First year in the U.S., but early car, right? Yep. Um, very good looking car uh, in that style because I think it had a Lando top or vinyl top. It had a vinyl top at some point. Somebody took it off and painted where it was black. Oh, okay. So okay, it cool. currently doesn't have a vinyl top. It has all the moldings to put it back on again. Uh, the cool thing about the first gen Colts or uh, Galants they were at that time um, was that they were very American designed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they had the same slits in front of the rear wheels, like a 69 Camaro. Um, they had the fastback styling, like a sporty coupe here would. Um, they had the quad headlights and the thin little bumpers. And they just, they looked like little American cars. Right. So that particular car, there's a story behind it now. Um, I was watching that car all week. Yeah. Because we have a plan at some point this year that we want to go up to the tip of the... Pacific Northwest. You and Naomi um, do, not you and I. Correct, yeah. <laughs> um, to, to buy something old and cruise it back down the coast. This sounds fun. Yeah. Um, it'll be a great story and be great pictures, and it'll be another way to sneak another car into the collection, right? I'm into this. Um, yeah. Don't, don't tell Naomi. Wait, she's sitting right behind me. Um, <laughs> so I was watching this car with some interest because a 71 Colt, a first gen Colt is, you know, other than at some point I'd love to find a wagon, but at this point it's like the last one that I kind of really want. Yep. Um, and to find one that was as sorted as this car was, is not common. Normally you'll find them like I normally buy them kind of dilapidated and kind of get them back to running condition. You know, you remember my 78 when I got it was awful <laughs> and, uh, slowly made it not so awful. <laughs> um, but this guy was sorted, ready to go. It was at actually a dealer was selling it. He'd gone through it. Fluids, brakes, suspension, bushings. Everything was new in this car. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was sitting around two grand for most of the week on a yeah. trailer auction. Site. And in my brain, I was moving money from left to right and figuring out where it could go. Um, and then all of a sudden it was $8,000. Yeah, I said but, in our group chat, I was like, eh, it's going to go four to six. You thought yeah. it would go less. It went more. But there was no bid history between twenty three hundred and eight thousand, huh. which is not which is suspect. Um, then, upon further digging, it seems that the person who put the highest bid on it had bid on like sixteen cars that week. Oh, and been outbid on all of them. So the theory was, well, maybe he's just tired of being outbid and wants to buy a car. Um, no. Turns out he was just on there playing games, which is not common on bring not common on bring a trailer. No, it's not at all. Yeah, because um, there's a, a bit of a vetting process that he yeah. got past somehow, um, and uh, the car is not sold. Oh, I did not know this. So as as of yesterday, there it's not official what's happening. There are a few parties who are interested in buying the car who were bidding on it, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not sure if it's going to go back up for auction. Because Bring a Trailer will list it again for free because of, you know, the situation that happened. Um, so he has the option to put it back up on Bring a Trailer. Um, so I'm not sure if it's going to go back up on auction or if it's going to sell outside of the auction now. Um, so I guess stay tuned to that one. Wild. So, yeah, chances are pretty good it won't wind up in my my collection. But it's not, it didn't sell for eight grand. Um, so you're 
your auction estimate of what'd you say five to six uh four to six yeah four, four to six um I, I bet now after seeing the genuine interest the car had uh and the only reason the bidding stalled is because it went from like 23 to eight grand in a minute um i think you might be on to something at four to six huh. so we'll see i mean the car is not perfect you know, like I said, it had a vinyl top at one point. Somebody took it off and they painted it black where it was. Um, it's got a little bit of rust bubbling at the bottom of the front fenders. Um, it's got one bubble on the driver's side quarter panel behind the rear wheel, which is super common in those cars because the trunk seals fail. And there's a, a non-drained um, like pocket there that doesn't have any drains on it and no holes in the bottom of it. So if water and dirt does get in there, it lives there. Yeah. So it's very common for them to have a little rust hole right there, which isn't the end of the world. But, you know, bring a trailer buyers are very um, picky, I guess you could yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. I'm interested to find out what happens. Uh, I'm not going to email the guy an offer because that's not where I'm at right now. Yeah. Um, but I'll watch I'll watch the auction again. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very it's a very rare opportunity to buy a sorted early Dodge Colt. That was you know, they, they just don't exist. Yeah, that was interesting insight. I didn't know any of that extra stuff. I, I just thought it finished and it went on. Yeah, no, I've been... Hmm. I've been losing sleep thinking about that car all week, so... Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure why. I just realized that if you Google Barrett-Jackson-Scottsdale 2020 and then Supra, all you get is auction results for 2020 Supras. Oh, yeah, because everything... I forgot money to yeah i forgot they had yeah i forgot they had new ones yeah whatever so. uh project updates i uh got some folding mirrors for the talon euro ones mm-hmm. popped them on there's obviously super easy to put on got way more room in my garage now to get by which is nice um i do have to i did forget that the trim on talon is different on the door than an eclipse because the talon has like this black strip that kind of goes on the driver's door where the Eclipse spoiler ends at the B pillar and goes to the back. And like the talon kind of extends underneath the window. So it doesn't like, there's a little bit of body paint showing like where the trim is, but also my window rub strips, the rubbers failing on them. So I think with some careful black vinyl application, it will disguise the body paint and the ruined, uh, are they rub strips on the window? Belt moldings? Belt belt moldings, you'll call them. Yeah. The external one on the outside, the aluminum one that's got black over it. Yep, because the rubber just yeah. falls off. So I think if I rub the rubber off and then carefully apply some black vinyl to a gloss black vinyl, it'll kind of blend into the gloss black spoiler and, and the mirrors. Yeah, that's a... Um... The belt molding is the official term for that. Yeah. Just makes the car look a little different. Change it up for a little while. Keep the car fresh for me. Yeah. Well, that's what you got to do with these things. You keep them forever. Then you got to make little changes or else you get bored. Threw some winter tires on the Golf. I got... uh, Excellent. I tried out Verdestein. Verdestein? Uh, Verdestein? Verdestein. I think that's how you pronounce it. Made in the Netherlands. Uh, I guess they make like small old car performance tires, which is kind of, yeah, they do. That's how I heard about them. And then on tire rack, they had uh, a good price on these tires. So I was like, cool. So I'll grab those. Uh, and then it was funny. I was looking at the sidewall. It says Gigorio, Gigorio, Gigorio. How do you say that? The, I always get that one wrong. So I'm not going to embarrass myself by pronouncing it. Well, Gigario. Yeah. Gigario. Gigaro. Gigaro. Gigaro designed. That's weird, but cool. Um, they are directional and I took them to the Volkswagen dealer because why not? The car only had 500 miles on it. Might as well let the Volkswagen dealer touch it. And they put two of the tires on backwards. <laughs> so, um, right. And I brought it back. I was like, Hey, not a big deal, but you put the two tires on backwards. The guys, like, Oh, I'm really sorry. And they just took it back and swapped it over. At least they and, fixed it for you. Well, they were going to fix it for me. Right. <laughs> So the good the good news is I found the Supra. Yeah, we can go right back to that real quick. So two of them were sold. Um, they're both manual um, turbos, so the, the the highest of the desirability, mm-hmm. and they're both sub two hundred mile cars. Oh, now the 
But the thing about that is both of these cars have sold at auction before for significantly less money. Yes. And now that there's a 2020 Super again and the general car buying public is aware of it again, and because the 93 through 99 Supras have sold for such high dollar numbers, I think it took these with them. Because do you have a guess of what they sold for? Get a bright red 91 target top five-speed turbo. It's like 100 miles on it. 35000 $88,000. Whoa! Yeah, that's what I mean. So we're not talking a $30,000 thing here. We're talking $80,000, $88,000. The other one is a slightly earlier car. It's got a maroon leather interior on a white car. Uh, and that was $71,500. So these cars haven't done that before. Yowzer. Okay. That's, that's the whole... That, that's the point I was trying to make with... You know, they say about the rising tide rises all ships, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything because just because there's an $88,000 and a $71,000 third gen super now doesn't mean that every third gen super is now expensive because the day before those cars sold, people are still buying turbo supers of that generation to take the transmissions out and put them in Cressidas. Huh. And, and that's not going to change. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not that desirable all of a sudden because they're just not as desirable of a car. I mean, yeah, these ones are nice. There are no miles on them. They're not going to be driven, so it doesn't matter. Um, but it doesn't affect anything. The bullet doesn't yep. affect anything. This doesn't affect anything. The dots in price doesn't affect anything. It's an interesting side note. It's interesting to talk about it, but at the end of the day, market doesn't move. If that was a 75,000 mile super that sold for 88 grand, then we could talk. Yeah, That might do something. But... I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're there. The, the The only good thing about this whole thing is that these foreign cars that we've always been into yep. are getting to the point where the people that go to these kinds of fancy pants wine drinking, you know, show off contest auctions are noticing them. Yeah, which means that everything gets that little bit more respect from every crowd, whether you need it or don't need it. At least you have it now. Well, it's, <laughs> you know? it's speculating, right? Yeah, and, and you're not going to roll into a car show with your 88 Super now and have the old guy sneer at you. He's like, oh, I sold one of those. I saw one of those sell last week at Barrett Jackson for 80 grand. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, it's that weird public perception that might change, but I don't think the value is going to change. So, and that's good. The public perception keeps these cars out of junkyards. Yep. And the more we can preserve, the better. So well, I hope one day it won't be, save, be me saving all the Colts. It'll be somebody else too, you know? Cool. Um, well, it was good to be back for this is our first recording of 2020. And we appreciate everybody who listens. And if you want, you can go follow us on Facebook, Auto Topic Podcast. Uh, we've we're getting some more stickers in stock. Uh, I've got surprise keychains on the way and some yep. buttons. We'll post about those yep. and how to get them uh, hopefully soon. And um, you can follow us on Instagram, Auto Off Topic. You can follow me on Instagram, Race to Anger. Brad, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram at TSISS350. And don't forget to join up on the Gearhead Project forums. Yep. Uh, I got to go on there and continue to update my project car build threads. Yes. I, I remind myself at the end of every episode to go on to that because, unfortunately, forums are still not at the forefront of my thought. I need to get them back there. Yeah, well, when you're binge watching some TV, you can just sit there and kind of update your build thread. From I'm just basically copying them over from other forums that aren't being used anymore, and it's a good right. place to keep it. And what I've been doing, uh, especially in like the Gallant one, is I've been making comments on it from 2020, like, "Oh, I did this," and then like, you know, I did this like 10 years ago, but. Uh, I wish I'd done it this way or it held up like this and like stuff like that. So I thought that was a fun way to update it. Yeah, no, I like that. I don't think I have many actual build threads over the years because yeah. I haven't really built many cars, but that's all right. Things will change. And now I'll have a place out here, hopefully sometime in the future to build cars and I'll have a place to update people on the gearhead project. So that's right. So as always, keep cars analog and aim for the roses. Yeah.